I think there are always those surprising recollection moments in the career as you're looking back and that the how did I get here moment. I think the biggest one was my first trip into Baghdad on a C-130. They don't tell you this, but you know, you're flying in at night and then in order to, you know, be as safe as possible, you get over the airport and essentially go into a nosedive uh, to, to land. And I kind of had this moment of, man, Life in Western Massachusetts was like pretty nice. How did I find myself in a nosedive over Iraq? Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Well, welcome to Tough Tech Today with uh, Mayan and Miller. Today, we have the honor of having Orrin Hoffman, venture partner at MIT's The Engine Investment Group. Orrin has quite the background in product development, uh, specifically in robotics. So, for example, um, he was a chief technologist at Endeavor Robotics, which itself was a spin-out from uh, his work at iRobot. And so, with that, welcome, Orrin. Thanks. Great to be here, guys. Elaborate a bit on on uh, who you are um, and what you've been working on lately. Yeah, uh, one of those um, I was just thinking about before the show the the weird career arcs that we take. So I think it's important to start a little bit earlier than maybe some guests. So I went to school in Western Massachusetts and was a uh, uh, you know typical Western Massachusetts hippie. Had hair down to my waist and uh, was working at Mount Holyoke teaching uh, after college and. I ended up getting recruited to to join a company that was kind of pre its its growth stage uh, in Boston, iRobot, uh, which for a roboticist was a pretty cool opportunity. So moved to Boston and uh, started working at iRobot. iRobot at the time was really kind of uh, you know an R and D house doing a bunch of SBIRs and DARPA programs and things like that, but just kind of sussing out different areas of, of product that robot technology could be applied to. Um, and then 9-11 you know, happened and the conflicts emerged. And it, it, was a, it was a weird time when you think of a, a dual-use company uh, because essentially, almost simultaneously, there was this huge demand to figure out a way to rapidly translate all of these kind of DARPA research robots into this needed uh, element to protect uh, our, our warfighters abroad, which was the improvised explosive device threat. And then at the same time, some of our government research had lent itself uh, in, a, in a funny roundabout way to the room of vacuum cleaner where, and, and this is true and a lot of people don't know this, the actual original cleaning algorithm of the Roomba was based on a DARPA mine sweeping project algorithm. So it turned out that the, to optimize the the clearing of a minefield was a very similar algorithm to the uh, optimizing the floor coverage of a room. And uh, for floor vacuum cleaners, battery to coverage is always the, the trick. And so uh, that kind of Roomba product was in its early infancy and was, was starting to take off. And I went uh, towards the government uh, and industrial side of the house and just entered this, this amazing moment in, in history for an engineer where we were essentially being asked by the government to to take these total prototypes and turn them into reliable, rugged, small to large scale robotic systems that we could send out into harm's way so that 
our warfighters didn't have to go walk down a street to disarm a bomb. And uh, I spent, you know, the next uh, eight years uh, responding to kind of these requirements overseas. And in so doing, somehow found myself in these product development cycles of, you know, around every six to eight months, we would have to design a new robot system. And I ended up deploying overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan on seven occasions to actually train and learn in the field how the robots were performing. And so for me, uh, it was an amazingly satisfying period of my career uh, because, you know, it's actually kind of seeing the, the impact of your engineering uh, save actual lives. And that was sort of when I fell in love with tough tech because I was seeing, you know, these these super high tech devices actually have a real world, super impactful um, result. Um, and then we uh, we spun out uh, Endeavor Robotics uh, once uh, after, a little bit after iRobot went public. Uh, for a number of reasons, uh, and uh, Endeavor Robotics was later acquired by one of the Defense Prime's FLIR systems. And around that time, I got tapped to join a, a, a early innovation cell within the government, Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, which was stood up by Ash Carter, who is a, a longtime friend of, of Tough Tech and has similar frustrations uh, as the engine has around why Tough tech doesn't turn into real commercial companies for a national industrial base and how we can better get government to collaborate with non-traditional companies and private capital. And so for three years, I worked on the front lines of creative government contracting and reducing friction for non-traditional companies to work with government, which was a natural kind of flow into my job at the engine, which um, uh, as a venture partner working with the investment team on uh, investing in, in founders and uh, tough tech startups, uh, and I also run the engine's government practice uh, to continue uh, pushing forward with our government partners on on how to fund the various valleys of deaths that our uh, that our companies see. Wow, what what a journey! Yeah, and it, that sure sounds like it's um, you know one thing has led to another on a very on a um, very specialized path. Did it look like that on you know that on the, the past you where was this something that it was like I I kind of I want to be in this position or that it that in some ways it it kind of evolved to be the case? Uh, well, I think there are always those surprising recollection moments in the career as you're looking back and that the how did I get here moment. I think the biggest one was my first trip into Baghdad on a C-130. They don't tell you this, but you know you're flying in at night. And then in order to, you know, be as safe as possible, you get over the airport and essentially go into a nosedive uh, to, to land. And I kind of had this moment of, man, life in Western Massachusetts was like pretty nice. How did I find myself in a nosedive over Iraq uh, landing? But, I, you know, I, I think every, to your point, where I am now, as I look back, it, it just seems like such a natural fit uh, in retrospect, but certainly couldn't have predicted it. So, so you mentioned some of the, you know, the, the frustrations of, of working with the government for a tough tech company. Can you kind of elaborate on what those frustrations are? Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I think what I will say first and foremost uh, is that there are a lot of folks in government right now that, that recognize kind of the two important things. One, from a, from a U.S. perspective, you know, obviously there's a whole conversation around China and the new economy or ind industry 4.0 and where we sit in global competitiveness. And, and there are kind of obvious gaps to, 
to how we're supporting our national industrial base, both from a private capital and public capital perspective. And um, I think there is there's also a recognition that there is a um, you know um, an emerging mass of global problems. You know, COVID being you know an obvious example of where our lack of infrastructure uh, and a national industrial base that can respond to global problems is be increasingly debilitating uh, at the global scale. And so, you know, the thing that I love most about the engine and the engine's mission is we are taking a swing at, at these tremendous global problems that are incredibly difficult to run through the full life cycle of the company. But, you know, if successful, these will be the foundational co- companies of, uh, of tomorrow. And, uh, so that's a that's an incredibly exciting mission to be on, and one piece of our kind of thesis as as the engine was looking to get stood up is that you know pure venture capital is is necessary but not sufficient for these top tech companies. There is a a network around these companies that has to exist that involves academia, it involves corporate partners, it involves different types of financing through what we call the capital stack. Um, mm-hmm. especially as we look to later stage. And then there's a critical component of the government, both at the early stage and at later stages when these massive swing companies are looking to scale up. So where we see the two kind of biggest gaps in government funding right now is that you know traditional government funding tends to support either companies that are going to be focused purely on on government issues and DOD being the largest kind of SBIR budget, it's generally on DOD issues. And then kind of what I would call service provider type companies. And and both of those types of companies have a incredibly important role to play uh, in our national industrial base. But the, the gap that's left there is that current government allocation of capital is kind of being done in a vacuum to private capital where it's not mm. coordinated. So a big part of uh, what the work that we and our, our partners are doing is trying to remove friction for these tough tech companies that need a combination of public and private capital. And there's a lot of kind of creative programs going on within the government. And I just want to take a moment to tip my hat to the folks in government right now uh, who I you know left behind who are still fighting the good fight. And it is incredibly hard, incredibly frustrating. And uh, it is uh, it is such a necessary thing, um, and and I think we're seeing some really exciting results in these innovation programs that we're seeing emerge over the last couple of years. I have a question that you mentioned about the the capital stack and access to capital is something that so many tough tech entrepreneurs are either facing or or maybe haven't realized yet that 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 can definitely be a crunch for them throughout various phases of their of the the company's life. So. Is um, could you clarify on uh, like the trusted capital network um, and the role that that group may play, um, if any, on, on part of this for the tough tech entrepreneur? Yeah. So so there are a couple of initiatives within government to uh, collect a network of private capital that is trusted capital. There is, I think, you're referencing the trusted capital marketplace. But there's also DARPA's investor working group and several other networks of investors. And the government's motivation there is just, you know, frankly, to make sure that that they're pushing companies to collaborate with investors that come with, I'll just call it clean money, 
um, and uh, the right motivations. Could, but could you I, elaborate I a bit that, on what, what that means, the, the clean money and right motivations? Yeah, you know, there's 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 been a, a lot of study around kind of IP theft and uh, foreign ownership. And so I think depending on what kind of work the company is is getting into, uh, there's kind of different levels of uh, uh, safe capital or trusted capital that that a company needs to watch out for. And I think the government is frustrated that organizations like CFIUS always have to go in with the stick and fix problems that happened. The things like the trusted capital marketplace are trying to get ahead of that. And, you know, it's it's good to assemble those, those cadres of investors. The engine is, is certainly one of them. But... You know that the the organization of investors is kind of step one. What the government's next step needs to be is figure out how to incentivize those investors to invest in companies that are of national strategic value for our national industrial base and national security industrial base. And then, you know, as a as a benefit to the the government, the government can then leverage the extreme multiplication that having, you know, leveraging private capital gives to the government, as well as giving the government early access to these companies. Uh, and, and only goodness happens when you create a, a community of government and corporate and academics around these companies, because uh, to my earlier point, uh, for, for these companies to be successful, they need they need that community of all those stakeholders. And now is most of the work to to try to push towards that is that happening from within the government organizations or is there um, legislation pending that might you know assist with partnering with private capital yes yeah, so there's there's some some interesting programs going on uh, you know the 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 DOE and, and NSF and army and and AFWorks is definitely leading the way on a lot of these um, matching grant programs, which I think is a great first step. Uh, AFWorks is generally focused uh, a little bit later stage, um, but, and, you know, it'd be great to, to stand up some of these matching grant programs at the seed stage to, to more effectively pull these breakthrough technologies out of universities, whether through the STTR or SBIR program or whatnot. Um, but I, I think that at some point there is a policy restriction on the way that the government needs to interact with these companies. You know, the government generally does not like to choose winners. It does not like to, to push chips in. Um, it kind of smears risk around just by, by nature and spread money around. And there, there are, for tough tech companies that are so capital intensive and have such a, a long runway, you know, we're not going to build the, the first global fusion reactor based on stacking up a bunch of SBIRs. You know, we're not going to build grid level energy storage uh, that way. So it's at some point we need to open up both early and later stage capitals to support these companies. So there is legislation, things like the Endless Frontier Act, I think are, are positive moves. I think there's some reform of the SBIR and SBIC programs to kind of further incentivize uh, and enable these, these really dedicated program managers to have more flexibility in how they interact with these companies and with the, the private capital markets. When with the considerations around uh, the government environment that a lot of these, um, it sounds like a lot of the companies that you work with um, must interact. How does that influence the way that you go about sort of developing an investment thesis on behalf of the engine? 
to figure out which which areas of technology could be really interesting and then furthermore then sort of hunting for the whales looking for the really great teams that are exploring those areas i think it's probably time for a for an anecdote uh just to kind of bring things uh down to tangible uh i, I think it's traditionally vcs are a little bit wary of government investment in companies or companies whose whose kind of plan is to go after research and development contracts and, and whatnot. But where we've seen it really work is where the government aligns the commercial growth of a company and support of that commercial growth that also meets government product requirements. Uh, so you can call that dual use, um, you call it just good business, but uh, that that to an investor is extremely appealing. And so I'll just give one example from one of our portfolio companies, Analytical Space. Um, they had a series of initial kind of early stage contracts with uh, the Air Force, uh, and that kind of helped on, combined with the, the engine and, and investment, helped kind of push their product roadmap and, and develop as a company. But then where it got really exciting is they were selected for the Air Force's Stratify program, which is a very significant matching grant. Um, I don't know if I can disclose the, uh, the, the number, but it's in the you know, tens of millions of dollars. And what that Stratify contract does for a company like ASI is it enables them to essentially go out to investors and say, look, we are we've established this public private partnership with the air force where they are going to fund a significant uh, portion of the initial capital expenses of putting these satellites up in space and in return for that they're going to be a customer uh for our data but we've done the technical homework to make sure that we can interoperate with uh, government assets as well as with commercial assets so we can also go after these commercial data markets and so what that means to investor is, is man, I'm, I'm now leveraging this public dollars with my private dollars to create you know, significant leverage on, on my dollars. And I have a government partner who is extremely competent at launching and testing space systems. And so there is goodness sort of across the board in those kind of public pri private partnerships. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's always hard to predict and I don't want to put uh, over pressure on the particular company, but I think that this this moment is going to launch them in a growth cycle that was was far higher than uh, than they would be without this public private partnership. And I didn't mean Definitely. to use launch uh, as a pun, but it's <laughs> fair enough. And you said that was the uh, Stratify program. Stratify, yeah. So the the AppWorks has taken an, an interesting tact on. Uh, kind of dividing up what they call small bets, mid-sized bets, and big bets. And so the small bets are sort of the early stage SBRs, and there's some mid-sized mid bets uh, in the couple hundred grand to couple million. And then they want to make a couple of small bets or a couple of large bets on kind of big swings that they recognized couldn't exist with just private capital and couldn't have a market growth opportunity without public capital. And so uh, ASI was selected for that program because there was a clear dual use uh, application for their technology. Um, and so that's that's just super exciting and it's it's how public private public private partnerships should work. 
we, we got to come up with a name that's not public private partnerships because I feel like I'm doing Peter Piper every time I see it. <laughs> You're doing well with it, though. <laughs> I, with the uh, public private, now I'm going to give me, give oh, me see, a See, there you go. With, yeah, with the public private partnerships, um, as a, as a, coming from the venture capital point of view, um, have you found that that you or your colleagues would view that kind of an, um, the, the the public work as non-recurring revenue, and thus it may not um, it, there may be a strategic value, but not necessarily like a like wow, this is on the path to IPO because of the amount of money being made. That Stratify may have given tens of millions of dollars, but that was kind of like a one-time opportunity. Yeah, that's a great question. So you definitely, when when dealing with government, uh, need to separate what is either research and development funds or NRE funds that push you along your product roadmap. Uh, that for us, fundamentally, for a dual use company, you know, having government as an end customer is great, but you need to be commercially successful first and foremost. So any government money that comes in that is distracting from that commercial roadmap is bad money but uh so you need to separate the the nre and research and development dollars from government as a customer which is a whole other bag of contracting worms and competing with defense primes and whatnot uh but you know part of the the value of things like the stratify is that not only did it provide the nre uh to get you know these satellites up in up in orbit which would be challenging to do piecemeal with venture capital dollars but it also set up the Air Force to be a recurring data as a service cu customer, uh, as well as open up the door to other government customers. And so I think you can sell to the government in more of a commercial way than just doing the typical program of records uh, and compete with defense primes on a battlefield that you're probably not gonna win uh, if you just look at the statistics. So could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what you do at the engine um, for companies that might be interested in, you know, pitching to the engine, what stage you're looking at and what type of companies you're really looking to invest in? Yeah, so the the engine is, uh, it's many things, but it's, it's kind of three things. We are uh, a venture capital fund. Uh, we, we do have patient capital, so it's a longer fund life than, than traditional venture capital. Um, but we are a, a for-profit fund because you know we believe that in order to make these these companies scale and be globally impactful and globally scalable, you know they have to make money. So we have to make sure that we're we're taking the biggest swings we can and f doing the hard work of figuring out how to make uh, these companies both. Uh, impactfully successful as well as financially successful. And so that's kind of the fun side, but then there are other, in order to make these companies successful and reduce some of uh, the friction that tough tech companies have historically found, uh, we provide infrastructure. So that's uh, lab space, wet labs, chem labs, bio labs, et cetera, as well as working space. Uh, because one of the, the, the huge points of frictions for breakout technologies out of universities is, you know, it's very hard as a 
you know, three to four person startup to buy millions of dollars of capital equipment right out of the gate. So giving giving companies a couple of years of, of space to figure out who they are as a company, what, what their exact product roadmap, and then what their capital and lab space needs are moving forward. Uh, it was a hugely critical part of, of the engine. We're super excited that you know we have our, our place in Central Square and uh, in a couple of years we'll be opening up what, we're, what we call our 10X space, which is uh, several hundred thousand square feet um, with many hundreds of entrepreneurs. It's gonna be you know, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory of, of tough tech and it's gonna be just this uh, incredible place to walk around and just see, see the world change in front of your eyes. Um, and then the third piece of the engine is uh, what we call the network, which I, I, re- I referenced earlier, which is the need to surround, you know, oftentimes first-time founders, uh, oftentimes technical founders, uh, with other founders, with uh, other like-minded investors, with academia partners, with government partners, with corporate partners. Um, and, and in so doing, we create kind of a network effect amongst, uh, the tough tech community. Uh, and it, it really is amazing to just watch how, you know, a founder in a, in a, uh, energy company is, could be going through the same issues as a founder from a totally separate, you know, biotech company. Uh, the challenges that founders face in tough tech are, are oftentimes startlingly similar, regardless of the space that they're in. Um, you asked uh, uh, what kind of companies we look at. Um, tough tech is uh, is the term that we use. That uh, you know, we we don't we don't like to to artificially bin companies, but but generally speaking, um, we look at kind of three categories: uh, companies that are involved in in combating uh, climate change. Uh, so that's uh, where most of our energy portfolio companies uh, go as, as well as um, industrial companies and um, really exciting space. Uh, human health, uh, which, uh, you know, we're not investing in, in drug development or pharmaceuticals, uh, really looking at exciting platform technologies, you know, whether it's how to use AI and lasers to build human tissue, uh, just incredibly exciting, game-changing um, uh, biotech, and then uh, computing of tomorrow, which uh, is uh, things like quantum computing software and uh, photonics and uh, autonomous driving, and um, you know just the, the kind of exciting uh, uh, component technologies that will have a, a significant effect on uh, as we look at sort of advanced systems and and what computing of tomorrow is going to look like. You, you have uh, you cover a large variety um, of topics, and and it, on the entrepreneur side, it, it may be the case that um, the problems I face in energy may also have comparable um, issues, like of a founder that's in robotics. But then on on the investor side, these are um, these are very different technical domains. So how do you? get smart on a new topic that may be of, of future sort of frontier investment interest? It's a great question. Um, so we, we, I guess, first and foremost, we don't ever believe that we're experts in the fields that uh, the founders are, are, are coming to us with. Uh, if we are, 
probably you know not the right investment because even if a robotics company crosses the door you know i'm i'm three years four years out of of being a roboticist and so you know um it's actually oftentimes harder to view things where you have some expertise in because you kind of know enough to be dangerous. I think, you know, we do do technical diligence on the companies. We have experts and academic colleagues and government lab scientists that that we pull in to, you know, certainly do a, a healthy technical diligence. But at the stage that our, our companies are in, you know, a big part of what we look at is, you know, the, the, the team, you know, is the founder you know, the founding team, do they have, you know, the technical chops, the plan, the, the people that they're going to bring in, uh, as well as the, the breakthrough technology in order to create this kind of globally changing company. And so uh, we, we try to, at the same time, it's, you know, as with any investment, you're balancing kind of uh, your uh, tolerance for risk, uh, technical risk, uh, with kind of your your belief in in the the impact that this company could have, and I think it's it's important to lean into the fact that if anything is a sure thing, it's probably not tough tech, and and we shouldn't be involved in it. So you know we're 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 taking big swings here, and so there's always going to be a lot of uh, a lot of risk, and you you just want to see a team that. Uh, you believe can can not just break through the one wall, but the the 10, 20 different walls that they're going to have to break through in the in the time it's going to take them to to really grow into the company that they want to be. And you mentioned your patient capital. What is what does actually that mean? Like, what's the scope of that? Ten years, twenty years? Are you making hundred year bets? <laughs> so. Um, Timeline is always uh, complicated, so it's a it's it's up to an eighteen year um, uh, investing timeline. Um, but I, uh, you know, I would I would stress that when when we think about timelines for these these companies, you know, it it may take um, quite a long time for you know to create the next you know GE of the U.S. or the next uh, you know uh, uh, foundational company, and so. You know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about not just our investment today, uh, where we're, you know, early stage seed round, Series A round uh, investors, but also what is their full capital stack going to look like in order to reach the ambition that that they're laying out? And you know, we spend a, a, quite a bit of time working with other financial partners to figure out, you know, can we fill those gaps with the mechanisms we have today, or do we have to go find the partners and and figure out a way to fill those gaps? Um, and I think that is a that is a really exciting part of the job because uh, figuring out you know how uh, companies can go from you know a, a relatively small seed check to building a you know two hundred million dollar first of its kind plant uh, at doing something is you know these are not typical invest in software and flip it in two years for whatever it is. And, you know, I think that, that that's a really exciting part of, of our mission here. How, well, go back back to uh, some of your, your earlier days when um, you were a software engineer, you know, fresh-faced, I, guess, I presume, like out of, out of college, software engineer at iRobot, which I'm sure was probably an exciting gig uh, for you. And, and now... How did you 
start to to move toward this this interest on the the business side of thing side of things where you are now on as, as venture capital I guess is technically a, a part of financial services so how that happen yeah it's uh, it's great so I, I you know I took it a detour through government on my way there. Um, and I think that that was sort of the thing that kind of flipped uh, in, in my head. You know, I, I the most satisfying part of my career, as I said, was, you know, that that feeling that the, the technology that you were developing was having an impact and quite literally saving human life. And that was kind of one widget saving one person. And as as I went to government and I saw these, these companies that were attacking kind of larger problems, but it still had that same feeling of, you know, if we can apply this technology and actually build a company around it, you know, you can have effect on not just one person, but on the entire world, right? And so, I guess as I as I got older, it just uh, you know moving into to an investment role uh, just felt like given given my experience in, in government that I had something to to bring to the table and my experience uh, as a as an operator within a tough tech company uh, and that this is a way that that I can just in in any small way help push these kind of more global swings and and that's just a. a just an amazing part of being at the engine and just feeling that that energy around that mission uh, every day that we used to go into work. <laughs> Everybody wants to know, or at least me, is is have you uh, chosen to keep up the coding skills uh, since since you're what three years uh, out of the robotics land? Yeah, there there comes a moment, um, you know, whether you're you're in it, an individual contributor to a company and you go up through the management track or in my case, it's went off to government and um, you have this moment where you look back and you're like, man, I haven't booted into Linux in like two years. And then your laptop <laughs> breaks and you buy another one and you don't even bother to install it. And then you're like, okay, <laughs> that, that was it. But I, but I do, I do help my nephew uh, do uh, STEM type robotics and I still try to do some STEM workshops uh, when I have the time. Um, so give me a Lego Mindstorm and I can still, you know, throw a couple of things together. Awesome. But my, my coding days are, are sadly over of anything more advanced than that. What do you see as the area of tough tech that you're most excited about right now? Something that you think is going to have the the big breakthrough that if the United States can, can seize it and create a company around it, it could really increase our standing in the world. It's, it's not an individual company, but uh, I think I think all of us have gone through a time of reflection uh, during this kind of COVID uh, epoch. And one of the things that I, I experienced deeply in government working with, with the DOD is, you know, there is certainly a very real global competitiveness state of affairs, uh, especially with China and, you know, kind of where, where we're going to be able to economically and, and militarily compete. And I think there is, if that motivates the, the government and, and the citizenry to, to push tough tech companies uh, farther along, then I, I think that's a great motivation. But I'm, I'm also motivated by these changing trends in a world and making sure that we 
figure out ways to apply technology and capital to equity. And so when I think about what has happened, uh, just looking at, at the U.S. and you know the offshoring, the the drying up of of low and mid wage jobs, uh, I think that there is a scenario in which we can make investments into enabling technologies and companies that will enable us to pull some of these industries that have basically shuttered in the U.S. or in the process of shuttering or offshoring back into the U.S. and offer not just high-tech jobs, but also jobs for the whole population. And I think, you know, when you look at companies like Boston Metal, which is you know, a, a distributed uh, metal manufacturing uh, technology that has the capacity to uh, totally revolutionize the industry and also provide amazing industry jobs to uh, a cadre of, of people that uh, are, I, I, I think we all are concerned that are being left out of the economic uh, growth that some of the country is seeing. And we have a lot of companies that are in that uh, arena uh, via separations, um, uh, Syzygy, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. Um, but, I, but I think that, that that trend is is something that I would, I would very much uh, like to lean into as we kind of do this introspection around COVID and, and look at what's on the other side for this economic recovery that needs to happen. Is there a, are there some fundamentals that you may have seen that a, um, an engineer or business person working on a frontier technology, trying to commercialize it, um, some fundamentals that, that would uh, translate beyond just in the United States for the many folks that are working on, on tough technologies outside of the U.S.? So do, are you asking to contrast like kind of what China's strategy to develop their national industrial bases, vice uh uh, the U.S. strategy or more at the entrepreneurial level? Uh, more on the entrepreneurial level for now is, yeah, for example, if we have um, a, a team that's, whether they're based in, say, in the U.K. or in a part of Africa, what um, are there some fundamentals that you've seen that uh, where, because they're not necessarily part or easily looped into some of the, the specialness of the U.S. ecosystem mm -hmm. or especially like the Cambridge-Boston ecosystem? Uh, so that's a great question, and I actually think uh, if if there was a, I think one of the the benefits uh, that we've seen as we've all tried to figure out what what work is like in the time of COVID is, you know, right now capital is essentially spread to to a couple of different focus areas: Boston, New York, Austin, Silicon Valley, et cetera. And it, it leaves a lot of potentially innovative hubs in the U.S. and across around the world uh, in the cold from a capital perspective. And one of the things that we've seen that has actually been heartening with this distributed online workforce is companies that historically would only hire locally, which kind of keeps these high-tech jobs uh, either brain draining from the Midwest or just leaves folks out of the ability to participate in that part of the economy. There's been this willingness to open the aperture to run the experiment of having a more distributed workforce. And I think what they've found is that they've found talent in places that they didn't suspect were there and that have been incredibly useful. And that's not just in underrepresented places in the U.S., but also globally. 
So then we may see over the next uh, several years um, during the so the, the mid COVID and and you know eventually the uh, post COVID uh, new normal that you know aspirationally that there may be um, a more variety of choices of where someone can choose to work to work on this kind of technology and it's not going to be just in some of the main capital uh, investment capitals. Yeah, I think that would be a, a terrific outcome. I mean, the, there there's there's a, a pretty significant disparity in access to capital, and hopefully these workforce evolutions, um, as well as uh, some of the the efforts, like in the Analyst Frontier Act, of creating uh, regional innovation hubs in underrepresented areas, can help uh, kind of diversify that access to capital. Uh, because I think if there's if there's one thing that is kind of a, a truism in in the startup community is that you know obviously it's impossible to predict which founders are going to be successful or not otherwise there'd be no such thing as VC and I think there is uh, there are a lot of different types of founders out there that could work on a lot of different types of companies and I think the more that we can open the door to those types of of founders especially underrepresented founders I think that is that is part of our mission at the engine as well. Now, how much does that um, distributedness of the new workforce affect tough tech companies, though? Because one thing that you mentioned as a resource that the engine provides is, you know, these lab spaces and these expensive machines. And so there's still going to be a very centralized aspect, to at least the work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at, at some level, when you got to run a centrifuge, you got to be in front of a centrifuge. <laughs> uh, but I do think that uh, there are especially when we look at kind of increase in, in these regional hubs and the one of the things that we try to do at the engine from an infrastructure perspective is not just provide organic infrastructure from the engine, but also to partner with all of the amazing infrastructure that's in the Boston area. So, you know, there's a supercomputer in Western Mass and, you know, Natick Labs has certain, um, uh, capital intensive equipment and MIT Lincoln Labs has an amazing foundry. And so to, to create a, a frictionless way for our founders to be able to collaborate with both that equipment as well as with the research scientists in those locations has been a big effort for us over the last couple of years. And I think, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes, but I think that that could be uh, expanded um, on a geographically diversified basis. So in the long term, you're saying the engine might also be focusing like how much do you focus on investments around massachusetts and around cambridge are you kind of expanding your focus to be more nationally well i think it should be noted uh that you know the engine fundamentally is uh is a great stacking up of different experiments on how to best support the tough tech ecosystem in the U.S. and globally, and so in the first couple of years of the engine, you know, it was very important to have this kind of cohort, uh, mostly local model. We've done some experimental um, uh, investments in companies outside of. I shouldn't say experimental investments. We've done some investments as an experiment um, uh, outside of, of Boston. We have a, a company in Oakland, a company in Houston, and um, those have been working out great. Um, and you know, so we'll we'll see how how the engine evolves uh, over time. 
What's your perspective on on a what we might call a non tough tech uh, company TikTok um, and some of the the issues that have emerged from that, where there's a focus on the algorithms and the um, opportunities or dangers of having um, perception and psychology influenced by what's shown to individuals on mass. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punt on that. I have I have too much on my plate to deal with the TikTok drama. So <laughs> tough tech is hard <laughs> enough. Because <laughs> that does come down to to things like CFS, right, and and uh-huh. uh, some of the nation state issues that that we come up against on, on tough tech, but now on a more of a consumer oriented uh, play. Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely rocked the consumer consumer world. Um, but I, I will say just on on CFIUS and and ITAR restrictions in general that uh, we really need to move as a as a national strategy from again this just sort of stick uh, approach to to preventing companies from growing through foreign capital and things like that to adding a carrot where. Uh, you know, if 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 we declared a national strategy to to unwind a deal, then there needs to be some way that the government is providing an opportunity for those companies to grow. And right now, that's not really a seamlessly and frictionlessly running system. And so, it is it is my hope that as we look at uh, you know, and who knows what what happens in the next administration, but if, as we look at significant infrastructure investments being budgeted for in Congress right now is my hope that uh, significant dollars are being set aside for these tough tech categories that will move the needle, not just for the companies, but for, uh, as I mentioned, across the board employment and uh, will allow these companies to stay in the U.S. and not go overseas, whether they're going overseas to get capital or to, you know, cheaper labor or whatever it is. And so, you know, I think that there is a an investment in tough tech that is is yet to come, and and the CFIUS problem is just sort of the tip tip of the iceberg uh, of that. If if you were then like king for the day, um, what how might you go about changing um, to add some of that incentive, incentives um, to to better align the whole sort of marketplace or industry? Uh, are, are you authorized to make me king for the day? I'll, I'll take the swing. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, <laughs> Where, where's, my, where's my little Burger King? Uh? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I will I will just lay out two sort of tactical but, but sweeping uh, policy uh, recommendations that we're actually working on now. So it's a, a timely question. Um, and and it, it it is kind of goes to how the government supports both early stage and, and later stage valleys of death. Uh, in the early stage, you know, one kind of fundamental assumption for tough tech, as, as I mentioned, is that it requires uh, a lot of diverse types of capital of which, you know, government putting capital in, in a vacuum has historically not been that effective in pushing tough tech companies forward, given tough tech company capital requirements. And the venture capital community, likewise, has not been as effective as it needs to be in investing in these companies in the early stage. So figuring out a way to create a pretty significant consortium of money and entrepreneurs, uh, you know, whether it's $500 million or a billion dollars, um, in order to essentially match up entrepreneurs that get investment uh, of private capital 
that then, you know, much like Afworks is doing with their later stage matching, matching grants, where these companies uh, get matching dollars from the government, uh, which kind of avoids them having to spend a bunch of time applying for to different kind of low probability win SBIRs and whatnot. So really to incentivize both government and private capital to work together at the early stage. So I think there's a, a small fund of that that would be great to see Congress push through and, and to provide the policy leniency for for uh, the government to be able to execute on that kind of a, a, a vision. And then uh, really importantly in the later stage as we're looking for first of its kind, these are uh, companies whose pilot projects, you know, the N equals one, uh, don't currently have a natural fit in the capital stack. So, you know, once you've built your third plant and you've proven the revenue model and whatnot, you're eligible for project finance and debt and, and sort of other kind of traditional financial structures. But if you're building a $100, $200 million first of its kind plant, it's, it's hard to get traditional finance for that. And so things like the DOE loan program office have been historically stood up uh, to, to help uh, reduce friction in those. And so I think a one of our recommendations is for a more national tough tech loan program office uh, to be stood up so that, you know, across the board for these big swing companies, there is a, a way for the government to help back uh, finance uh, that, that goes to these first of a kind projects. So those are my two king for the day policy swings. <laughs> Well, now that now that you're on, you know, the, the wide audience of Tough Tech today, you know, people will hear those and uh, probably make it happen, right? Yes, make it so. so. Call your Congress people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're getting to the to the end of the time slot, so we just wanted to give you a moment if you had any last things to say um, to our audience, especially um, anyone that's aspiring to. Uh, found a tough tech company or maybe, you know, has an idea and a technology that they're trying to commercialize. Um, what what advice would you have for them? Yeah, come talk to us. I mean, I, I think one of the things that that you know, we, we really lean into is spending time with potential founders and entrepreneurs. I mean, it is a it is a fundamental core part of our mission to uh, be in various academic uh, and government labs and uh, you know, for folks that have maybe even never considered the entrepreneurial path, uh, just to kind of help uh, mentor, work with programs like ICOR and Activate and, and programs like that, and the, the innovation. The MIT has several great programs, but you know, I, I think there's a, a historical misidentification that you know technical founders uh, you know need to go find an MBA or, or, or whatnot and. Uh, that is not something that that we lean into. Um, so we we encourage you if you are a, a technical founder that isn't sure exactly what their idea is and uh, but just kind of wants to explore taking a swing at whether your piece of breakthrough technology is commercializable. You know, please uh, reach out. We have a link on our website where you can just sort of put a couple of sentences in on your idea, and and we will talk to you because it is the the best part of our job is you know talking to early stage potential entrepreneurs and and you know in the hopes that uh we can you know make an investment in them and in, in, in their dream and so uh talk to us earlier rather than later i think would be my message to entrepreneurs that are are thinking about it awesome thank you very much we'll make sure we put that link in the description of the video and the podcast um so people can check that out
Awesome. Well, it's great spending uh, the hour with you guys. Uh, thank you for what you guys are doing. I think it's uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the podcast so far. Hopefully, your blooper reel uh, on me is the first of a long reel. But uh, appreciate the time. Public private placement. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. There we go. Had to wait yeah. to the end to get it. Yeah, yeah, I had to really think about it and concentrate. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Warren. We really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Tough Tech Today. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star review on any podcast app or give a thumbs up and subscribe on YouTube. Next week, we'll be sitting down with Mazdaq of Trace Matters and we'll be discussing how he got his mass spectrometer company off the ground. Thanks again and stay tough.